0: We were young until we went, but the books stay the same. Reading, reading our favorite books. Oh God, talking about the parents. Perhaps we can segue into this because there's another thing. Before we talk about the racism. <laughs> There, there's something else that I find problematic in this book, which is the manner death is brought up in this mm. book, because, you know, it's explained that Peter and company were all on the train when they die and then they get into heaven. Right. Mm-hmm. And there is there's a couple of lines throughout the book that kind of do this thing where it really talks up this version of heaven One I want to read, it's describing these fruits that everyone's eating in heaven and how they're the most amazing things in the world. It says, If you had once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world, meaning our world, would taste like medicines after it. But I can't describe it. You can't find out what it is like unless you can get to that country and taste for yourself. And... This is juxtaposed next to the story about how all these people died in a train accident and they're instantly rewarded for that. And it's like, maybe, I don't know if I'm being over, over oversensitive about this, but telling little kids that, hey, if you die, you're going to go to heaven and get to taste all these amazing foods, run up waterfalls, do amazing things.
1: Maybe not the best
0: message to send.
1: Yes. The glorification of the death of children in this book is bad. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) I mean, look, I'm not against children dying in books. By all means, feed that into my sick, sick soul. But when you're trying to make that out to be a good thing, oh boy and then there's also the side of it that like it's fear-mongering too because it's saying that you have to find find out how to get there yourself and it's followed directly after the story about susan so he's trying to scare children straight essentially is what's happening here and it's just revolting
1: well I was going to say, I think it's especially bad in this book. I mean, obviously, the Christian undertones have been there since the beginning. And they are more or less overt. And we've talked a little bit about how much this is brainwashing for children. I think it gets especially bad in this book because we get the overt collapse of Narnia religion and Christianity. They are now entirely the same thing. We get this first with a line by Lucy, of course. Who? Let me see if I can find the line. Yes. Okay. So they're talking about how the stable is bigger on the inside, which, like, I really wanted a Doctor Who reference here. It's bigger on the inside. Is it? But instead, we get this. Yes, said Queen Lucy. In our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. It was the first time she'd spoken. And from the thrill in her voice, Tyrion now knew why. Blah, blah, blah. It's all about how she's, like, very, like, connected to this. But, um, that's a reference to, like, Jesus. So, we're now like, okay, Christianity is real.
0: Yeah, Aslan transforms into Jesus, or clearly... God. It's more, I suppose, prominent in this book than any other books. Right.
1: So, with that fear-mongering, it's, like, worse because now it's... You can't avoid it being Christianity. You can't read this and be like, Whatever. It's it's just straight-up Christianity, and Hive uh, is straight-up saying, if you don't believe, you're going to hell.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're going to go into the Shadowland. Yeah. Having it be so in-your-face now, not just that it's so in-your-face, but in the way that it's communicated just feels very troubling. It's minimizing the tragedy of these children dying. The books have spent so much time making our world, making it out to be just the worst. Where you have shitty schools, shitty people, shitty governments, shitty weather, shitty everything. (laughs) And it's like, why wouldn't you want to go to Narnia? So really, logically, the best thing you can do right now, if you are a kid and believe in Narnia is to kill yourself. And it's just like, you know what? I'm bringing it back. This is another edition of F*** You, C.S. Lewis, because this is just truly abominable. And you, you want to know the funniest thing? This book actually won an award for being the best children's book of whatever year it was published. And it's just like, when you break down the message and get past like, oh, it's cute that they're in like, this wonderful, amazing world that's described so beautifully. Once you sort of look behind the curtain, gross, man. Very gross. Get out of here with this shit.
1: Yeah. <sighs> Want to deal with the racism now?
0: Let's talk about the racism. Oh, boy.
1: All right. So, this is kind of just uh refer back to Horse and His Boy for some of the stuff about the color means, but we have some great new additions, yeah. including. Brown face!
0: Brown face! (laughs) He's so racist.
1: Woo, uh, yes. uh, In order to sneak back into the camp, Tyrion, Jill, and Eustace dye their skin with some sort of something so that they look like color means. That's a thing that happens.
0: Obviously, this is a product of its time, and I feel like there are many things to criticize this book for in terms of its depictions of race. I I feel like it would be a little... Well, it's not unfair because it's definitely fair to criticize it for that, but it is a product of its time where you have white actors playing black face, brown face, yellow face. It was a very common thing back then. And so like, maybe it's just like a general blanket criticism of like, that's a bad thing, but it, you can't really necessarily dock C.S. Lewis in particular for doing that.
1: I think that, well, that is definitely gross. <laughs> And we don't like it. I think there are worse, more insidious things that happen in this book. I just wasn't expecting that particular one. (laughs) I think the worst thing is that now the clearly Middle Eastern, Muslim coded characters are worshipping the devil. yeah, no toy. What'd you think we were doing? And I think that there is some stuff going on, especially with the Tashland stuff, which is so shown to be like again bad by this book. That is directly commenting on Allah versus God, yeah, in a really uncomfortable way because um, obviously they are the Allah of Islam is. Related to the god of Christianity in our world. And so this Tashland thing, it feels like Clive being like, they're not actually the same thing. How dare you? In a way that's really gross. And then making Tash very monstrous and evil and all of that. And this is all, of course, like, tied back to the brown-skinned people who are also enslaving people. So... On the upside, we do get the heroic Color Mean figure of whatever his name is. Emith. <laughs> but that is not enough to make up for all the rest of this.
0: It's the same thing with uh, Erevis. Yes. It's essentially tokenism, where you have the one Color Mean who happens to be good and gets in. And in fact, in the final scene when all the characters are coming back, Ervis does make a brief appearance, and as far as I can tell, she and Emith are the only color means who who made it into Narnia Heaven. It's like the exceptions which prove the rule, where it's like, yeah, Emith can get in because ultimately he was good, but there's a reason you don't see more color means around, and it... It's bad. It's just bad. It's just a continuation of what we got in Horse and His Boy, where the same negative stereotypes and the sort of connection, you know, I brought up in in that episode how they compare Rabidash, I think his name was, uh, to an ape. In this book, the color means are working with a literal ape.
1: Working with an ape and a cat, too, which, like, cats are often female-coded. Racism and sexism and all of that are getting mixed into this.
0: Just coding your bad guys as the other Mm. in this series, inevitably, this is going to be the outcome. We get an endless parade at the end of white people who show up, like all of Tyrion Lannister's ancestors show up and his dad shows up in the most meaningless, like, who cares? We've never met this character. We've never heard about him before. But we can get into that later. You know, there's plenty of white people on display in this book making it into heaven. And it's just like the Calorines are never depicted as anything but despicable. And
1: now they worship the actual devil.
0: And they <laughs> worship the actual devil. And then also like another thing in this book is that there is a use of a racial slur. Ah, uh, yes which I think I counted, it's used five, on five separate occasions. It's used by the dwarves against the Calamines. And yeah, that's just an element that is in this book. You know, the same way this book is teaching children that makeup is bad, it is basically teaching that dark skin is bad. And yeah, okay, there's the occasional brown guy who's a decent chap, but you know, You see the same kind of thinking from, like, racists who use that token black person of, like, that person's a good person of this category. He's the exception. It's just so disheartening to see that sort of thing in a book like this that's so beloved. It's just a mark against this book for the rest of time. Like, you're not going to be able to avoid that. You cannot have this narrative without suggesting that brown people are bad. So f*** you, C.S. Lewis.
1: Yeah. I was really hoping that all the bad things I remembered about this book would be less bad upon return. And they were, in (laughs) fact, (laughs) worse. It's definitely hard to deal with that, especially with, like, there are certain books where, like, they have some stuff that, like, the brown face is, is a product of their time that is still bad, but, like, you can be like, okay... It was written in the 50s. People were idiots. Wait a
0: minute. How did this happen? We're smarter
1: than this. Apparently not. And you can sort of be like, okay, I still see why this is being printed and given to children, even if it has this problematic element. Not the best thing in the world, but like, okay, fine. It's a classic. But I think that we've encountered with multiple books in this series, stuff that I think is just so deeply toxic that i cannot believe these are still being given to children and that not only that i don't know if this was the case for all people but i read the lion the witch in the wardrobe in school so this was not only given to me by my dad prior to this but also like then this series was brought up in my school and we didn't read some of the other like more problematic books but like You know, if I I read this in school and was interested, that would have led me down this path and therefore school would have led to racism, (laughs) which like, maybe we should be thinking about that.
0: Yes. This is something you and I have talked about in terms of the next book we're going to cover. Yes. We want to talk about a book written by a person of color, but as we were sort of talking through what books we read as children and really specifically what books we read in school... We came to the realization that there is no overlap for books that we've read, written by people of color. And a part of the reason why is that, like, I can count on one hand how many books by black authors, for example, I read in middle school and high school.
1: I'm pretty sure I can count on no hands. (laughs) I'm pretty sure, specifically in school, I did read independently books by authors of color. Thank God that I I did. I I'm pleased to have those experiences, but like through school, I am pretty sure that I did not read a book by a black person and I mean, it could be that there's one from like middle school or elementary school that I'm forgetting, but I sincerely doubt it. And I went through all of the books I read in high school, for high school, and The only non-what we would think of as white.
0: You're saying it weird. Saying what weird? All of it.
1: Where do you get off? Author I read anything by was Jewish. So, that's not good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's also, I mean, we both grew up in California. You grew up in the Bay Area.
1: Yeah. What was my high school doing?
0: (laughs) Yes, you think that we would do better. We're not doing better. And I should, I guess we should mention that, like, we're talking specifically like novels, not necessarily short stories or poems. But I feel like it's also another form of tokenism where you have the major white authors who we spend weeks with their books, reading them and talking about them. And then, you know, we'll throw in a black author, a Native American author, a Latino author. In the form of a short story.
1: Yes, you are so right.
0: I think we need to really think more critically about like, yeah, the Chronicles of Narnia are considered classics. But should they be? Should this be required reading for people? Maybe if you're a fantasy, if you want to become like a fantasy writer, because clearly these books inform a lot of thinking in terms of the fantasy genre. Maybe. Maybe. It's the same way that, like, if you're going to study English literature in school, you should probably read Mole Flanders because it's the first novel ever, and historically that's just important.
1: Well, first novel in Europe.
0: (laughs) Oh boy, is this embarrassing. First of all, Don Quixote is considered by many scholars to be the first European novel and it was written about a hundred years before Mole Flanders. Secondly, Robinson Crusoe, which was written four years before Mole Flanders, is also considered by many to be the first English novel. So, you know. Oops. I would never recommend Mole Flanders to anyone who is not studying English literature for school or for a career. It's not good. So there's some intrinsic value for its, the Chronicles of Narnia for its foundational elements. Outside of that, I don't think these books are really good to begin with. And then the messaging of them is just so all over the place that, honestly, I cannot recommend anyone to read this series. Because I, I think it's, it's poisonous in a lot of ways, and it's not worth your time. But I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a tangent.
1: It was a tangent, but it was a tangent we needed to go on.
0: I appreciate that reassurance. So about this book, I think we could talk about the ending, which for me encompasses the last 50 pages or so when they get into to heaven. And it's a fun romp. Because they can all run at Mach 5. <laughs> yep. Yeah. They can run run up waterfalls. Which, actually, let me, let me just find the line for this. Because this is, when I read this line, I felt brain cells start to disappear. <laughs> so, like, all these animals are running up the waterfall. Jill's l- watching this happen. It's like, whoa, this is crazy. And then it starts, but before Jill had time to notice all these things fully, she was going up the waterfall herself. It was the sort of thing that would have been quite impossible in our world. Oh, thanks, CS, yes, for clarifying that running up waterfalls is impossible in our world. I just—I didn't know.
1: Yeah, I love that he doesn't imagine that, like, gravity, it's literally impossible. <laughs> He's like, eh.
0: So dumb. And it's, and it's like, it's trying to do that thing where it's trying to place you, the reader, into the scene because then it describes how imagine if you were running up it and you could feel the water and the current was racing behind you but you kept going up and it's trying to like get you involved in the narrative and it's uh, oh god it's so bad like usually cs when he's describing like it's it's some great stuff this felt very bad so i just wanted to point that out
1: okay <laughs> this is a safe space for you to point out things like that.
0: Oh, thank you. But otherwise, it's everyone's just running super fast. They're all running towards the Garden of Eden basically, and that's where they have the reunions with everybody, including characters we've never met and don't care about and even characters we have met and still don't care about. <laughs> and yeah, it's supposed to be this fun little thing where it's like, "Oh, Look at all these people you never knew. Isn't this amazing? Mm. As you can probably tell, I did not care for the ending. I just didn't care.
1: I think it should have just been Reba Cheap.
0: Yeah. It should have just been Reba Cheap pulling off like an Ayn Randian style monologue and talking for 50 pages about the means of production. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just think. Yeah, I mean it's it's a nice. There's some nice moments in there. I mean, I think the fact that Reaper Chief is the one at the gates makes sense and is cool because he is the one who went, like, literally sailed directly to heaven. He was like, pass go, don't collect. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> he, the Reaper Cheap thing is cool, and I as I mentioned, I like that there is sort of the bookend of Lucy talking to Mister Thomas. I think that that's a good narrative thing. Otherwise, like, I wasn't worried that any of these people didn't get into Narnia in Heaven. We don't really see any other reunions that are impactful, so like, what's the point? Most of the, like, running through stuff I find just kind of tedious. And yeah, it's supposed to be this big celebration, but they are all dead.
0: I don't feel so good.
1: And so that really just kind of takes the wind out of the sails. I wish Clive had decided to leave a little bit more of the mystery. He hints throughout the book that they died in the train accident. It is, like, very firmly foreshadowed and hinted at. And I wish more that, like, maybe they close the door and Aslan's, like, further up, further in. And it either ends there or maybe it just ends with sheep opening up the gates to the city. Or that a little bit more of the mystery is left as to what exactly is happening, what's going on. And there's more of the sense of, like, intrigue and wonder I feel like the fact that it's so over-explained and everything takes away from any sort of mysticism he was going for.
0: Yeah. To me, an element of this that was interesting is that C.S. Lewis basically contradicts this scene indirectly when he writes, um, oh gosh, I think it's called On Grief or something like that. Yeah. Where he writes about his wife passing away and there's a really interesting passage in that book where he talks about how people offer him this comfort after his wife has died that like, oh, you'll see her again in heaven. And he comes to the realization that that's not the point of heaven. When he's in heaven, it's not about reuniting with your family and your loved ones. You are with God and you are celebrating God. And that offering that kind of comfort is a form of idolatry. Having that knowledge, this whole scene falls even flatter because we now, I think it's safe to say that like, C.S. Lewis would not advocate for this kind of thinking, that this is a Mm. form of celebration, that Tyrion's reuniting with his father, the Pevensies are reuniting with their parents. That is not what this is about. They are in heaven, they're with God, and they're going to worship the fuck out of him for the rest of time. Going back to the, problematic nature of glorifying death. Like, you're telling children your parents or your grandparents or whoever was close to you who has died, you'll see them again in heaven. So, just, uh, make sure you're on the right track. Put that lipstick down, buddy. (laughs) Again, this award-winning children's book, really, uh, pushing children to die so that they can go to heaven.
1: (laughs) It sure is a stance.
0: <laughs> There's a passage in here where all the kids are sort of debating this thing where they, since Aslan told, like, Peter, Peter, Susan, all like, right, Susan doesn't count here, but Peter, Lucy, and Edmund, that they would never come back to Narnia. And they're like, but how are we back? And Diggory is like, listen, Peter. When Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, which also all all the old narnia that mattered jesus dude all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real narnia through the door and of course it is different as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream and then he point blank references uh, plato's allegory of the cave yeah at this point but like that whole passage felt super preachy more so than anything i can recall at least in the last few books
1: oh yeah most of narnia heaven is is just preachy it's it's very like let us lay out exactly how this religion works and what you should believe and here it is it's christianity welcome Hail Messiah. i'm
0: not the messiah i say you are lord and i should know i followed a few it's again going back to that old classic prom of this series of the one-to-one allegory nature of it there's not really much substance to it beyond that this is heaven this is huge propaganda to uh, tempt children into worshiping a cat and to me it is just kind of dull the only element and we've talked about this a little bit the only element of interest to me is e because i think you said Theologically, that is like a very weird position for C. S. Lewis to take. Yes. Or very surprising at the very least, of suggesting that it does not matter who you believe in, as long as you do good. That's part of the some of the controversy of this book, because it's it's sort of directly contradicting a lot of Christian theology. That at least opens the door, so to speak, to sort of accept that people from different cultures, from different belief systems, different backgrounds that they are not doomed from the start. It feels very patronizing cuz it's just like, well, you get a gold star for trying. That's an issue, but at least it it feels more merciful.
1: Right. I mean, it sounds more reasonable and it it does like if we're in a world where there is a god and then there is a not good god also thing i am not nice i am not kind and i am not wonderful which is its own confusing thing which is fully not explained by this book we've never had any (laughs) indication that there's a force opposing aslan that is nearly on his level so the whole inclusion of tash does not make sense but if we're in a world where we have this sort of like you know two god system one good one bad it would make sense that like they are empowered by things of their nature, and therefore doing good mm. empowers good, doing bad empowers evil, so like yes, I think it it is a a scene. It is probably the reason I reread the end of this book so many times. I found it very comforting as a child. It's one of the reasons why, as a kid, I would straight up say that I worshipped a Narnia Christianity and not like <laughs> actual Christianity because it was preferable to me,
0: amazing,
1: yeah. Uh, that was an actual thing I repeated for many years.
0: That is just so adorable. <laughs> I love that.
1: It was something. But <laughs> but it is, it is a, a sentiment that is interesting and different and that I am sort of glad is out there in the world in this book. But it certainly doesn't redeem the rest of everything. And again, as we mentioned, contrasted by the fact that Susan is damned for lipstick. It doesn't really operate as well as it could.
0: There is a reference early in this in the end where it mentions that there was a dwarf because earlier in the book bu- in the book, the dwarves, they're basically egging on both sides, the Narnians and the Color Means, to the degree that when one side starts to get an advantage, they start murdering that side. So there's a, there's a part in the titular last battle where a bunch of horsies arrive and the dwarves start shooting them with arrows in this really, truly horrifying scene. I laughed out loud at it. I loved it so much. You will
1: always be a monster. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> You're sick. You're a sick, sick man.
0: Uh, fast forward to the end and we're told Eustace sees one of those dwarves who was shooting the horsies enter into heaven. And he's like, what's that about? And then he says, well, it's none of my business, so I'm not going to ask anything more about it. And I literally wrote in my notes, f*** you, because I want to explore that more. Like, why is this dwarf who performed this unquestionably terrible action why does he get to go to heaven when the other dwarves don't? I think this is a an issue where of CS's overarching mantra of like mind your own business being a detriment to him, because like this is a case where it's I think it's okay to not mind your own business.
1: There's actually uh since we're pausing at the whole like looking one way, going to the Shadowlands, the other way going into heaven, bit there's another interesting part of that, which is that the talking beasts who do not end up following Aslan are immediately stop being talking beasts. They are immediately back to regular animals. And in bringing that together with our, you know, now <laughs> multiple episode-long discussion... Yes. ...of talking beasts' capability of good or evil, it seems like the answer we have received is they can no longer be talking if they choose evil, <clears throat> right? Like they lose their capacity to be talking beasts.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because there was a scene that directly referred back to Magician's Nephew about how every talking beast was told as a child that if you were bad, you would become like every other beast. And so I'm like, huh, that doesn't jive with how I remember that scene. So I found the original passage and let... Me. Yes. So the actual line from Magician's Nephew is Aslan speaking to the beast. He's just given them the power of speech. And he says, Do not go back to their ways, lest you cease to be talking beasts. For out of them you were taken, and into them you can return. Do not so. Which to me does not necessarily suggest a moralistic stance. It's not saying if you do bad, you will no longer be a talking beast. It's just saying, do not emulate non-talking beasts, which I don't think is really necessarily a moral thing. It's just saying, I don't know, don't be like them. It kind of feels like a retcon, because it is now suggesting that, like you're saying, that talking beasts are capable of doing evil, and as a result, they're being punished by losing their power of speech. And I suppose in relation to that their power of higher consciousness. And like Ginger is clearly an evil cat. You know? Yes. I don't know. It's inconsistent.
1: But at least we now know they have the capability for evil. We've been worried about this the whole time.
0: That's true. You're still never gonna convince me that Reapcheap should not have gone to Aslan's country and that it should have been Eustace. Oh I will forever believe that. But yes, you're right. It answers that question. Not quite sure what to make of it, because I think alluding back to our own earlier discussion about like it seemed that these animals were innately good and just knew instinctually what was of Aslan and what was not, this kind of throws a wrench into that.
1: Yeah, I'm not... There's a lot I'm not sure what to do with in terms of, like, the hierarchy of various species in this book. Well, and then the entire series. Um, Like, we talked a little bit about how the dwarves are always kind of, like, shown as less than in a lot of circumstances. Um, And there are other creatures like that. But, like, also the talking animals are below the humans. But, like, the non-talking animals are, like, less than the talking animals. There's a whole hierarchical structure of this world. That is really weird and toxic and, like, there's a reason why Shift wants to say he's a man. I am man, hear me roar. Yeah. And, like, yeah, partially because humans are seen as closer to Aslan and closer to God and the instruments of God.
0: It's power.
1: It's power, yeah.
0: If he can pass as a man, he is instantly given more power because of that.
1: Yeah, So that's a whole other thing, which obviously could also be coded as racism.
0: Yes. I mean, I, I think this book does more than any other book to sort of collapse that hierarchy. It's mm. not as prominent. And, and you get this, let's talk about something positive that I think might be one of the only things that you liked in this book. The relationship between Tyrion and Jewel, the unicorn
1: is you all said it's with me. Oh my god, yes! They are life partners, they love each other so much. Wait, okay, no, I just gotta set see. So, we open on Tyrion. He's at his hunting lodge on like a retreat, but it's just him and Jewel. Like they are just here having a couple's vacation. <laughs> And like <laughs> they charge into battle together. They make the decision to surrender together. Like they are in an equal partnership here. This is this is love. And obviously Tyrion sneaks back to rescue Jewel. And there's a lot of they like do a lot of kissing. And uh, yeah. You
0: know me. Love <laughs> that kissing.
1: Yep. And there's <laughs> just like so many great moments of them just being like, we are life companions. And we make decisions together and we're together. And like, Jewel, there's that moment where like Tyrion sees his dad and Jewel's like hanging back and it's like, I'll say hello later. And it's very much like, you know, the son-in-law just kind of like waiting for his time. Yeah. They have a great, really beautiful relationship.
0: And one element that I really liked that's kind of repeated throughout the narrative is how often they lean on each other, like literally lean on each other. Yeah. And this kind of like these these moments of just genuine love and affection physical affection and emotional affection shown between these two characters that i thought on the one hand was just really endearing but also just in sort of the dramatic valence of this story how dark it is it's it's a relief it's refreshing to see this kind of support taking place even in the darkest moments and like they say some dark lines like i think jewel at one point says something like we would have been better off if we had died as children which i guess c.s lewis is all for (laughs) so but genuinely they just love each other in this really as you said platonic way that's just really endearing
1: it's really i do think it is really one of like the very few positive things in this book and certainly positive relationships even with like we haven't really talked about them. We get the return of Eustace in jail and found out they've been like studying to come back to Narnia. And unfortunately, as we said in the Silver Chair, we don't really get a haunt of them as who they are as human beings. And we don't really get much of their relationship in this book either, other than that clearly they've continued to hang out and be friends. There's a is one great moment where Eustace interrupts lucy talking and it's a good character moment for him because it's like very much a useless thing to do but like other than that there's not a whole bunch of good like character beats for them they do have a discussion where they commit they realize fully that they're po- they're probably going to die in arnia and they say that they want to they want to see this through whether or not they'll die
0: i thought i'd die fighting side by
1: side with an elf what about side by side with a friend I could do that. So at least they have that moment of, of a, it is an active decision for them and they understand the risk they're taking. But otherwise, yeah, the really the best relationship we get is Tyrion and Jule, who have a consistently warm, loving, wonderful relationship with each other. So at, yes, at least we got that. <laughs> and I do think also that it, they are meant to specifically act as a, mirror to shift and puzzle Mm -hmm. where jewel and Tyrion is like this is a good partnership shift puzzle bad partnership yeah
0: even the species it's like an ape and a donkey versus a man and a unicorn so it's like yeah the worst of the worst i suppose (laughs) of those types of animals versus the best of the best of these other types of animals which you know it's its own thing but I think the contrast does work because we do see this relationship between shift and puzzle, which is very one sided, very abusive, lots of gaslighting going on uh, poor puzzle. He's just forced to wear the frickin lion skin for more than half of this book. Oh. Even when he he is freed, they're like,
1: <laughs> you got to keep it on so that we can show people. <laughs> but
0: at that point in the narrative they're actually going back to care pervel so there's nobody to show this they can take it off <sighs> then and put it back on later but they're like no 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 you have to keep wearing it so like that's weird but it is a nice contrast of showing like what does a real positive supporting relationship look like and i don't think we've really gotten anything quite like that in these books you could say maybe Reba and Eustace at a certain point have that similar kind of support?
1: I'd say Lucy and Edmund and Prince Caspian no, that's fair. probably are one of the closest things we get to that. Where we have a character consistently supporting another character.
0: Yeah. But this this definitely does have a different valence, like you said. They, mm. Not necessarily romantic, despite the kissing. Maybe they're just asexual. Who knows?
1: But that is, other than Reba cheap. The one shining light of this book.
0: I suppose for me, it's definitely not positive, but it is a thing I liked, which is when Tash comes in, Tosh, Tash, Tosh.0, however you pronounce it, and the Calermen general suddenly realizes that Tash is real. For me, it was a cool moment. I always liked that moment of these characters having that realization that their God is real and he hates you (laughs) and (laughs) just confronting that existential dread of that. I love that. I just love that so much. So I really did enjoy that moment in this book where then the general, (laughs) the general in an effort to appease Tosh tries to, um, throw in as many Narnians into the stable as sacrifices. (laughs) Which that's fun. Also, like, shift gets yeeted into the stable by Tyrion. That was one of my like, just a really satisfying moment.
1: <laughs> yeah, the actual battle is again does not work in this series, but I think the actual battle is good and well done.
0: Yeah, not just because of like the descriptions, but because there it feels like there are actual stakes. We see characters we know. Get thrown into the stable.
1: Yeah, there's characters dying all around. There's the added threat of the stable. One of the things I like about it is that there is a sense of, like, where can these characters go? Of being surrounded? And, like, all options are bad. Like, they're trying to... The enemies are trying to herd them towards the stable. And so, like, they're very pinned in. It's it's a good battle.
0: <sighs> it's like the Battle of Winterfell. If that battle was actually well done.
1: Wow. What a hot take.
0: What a bold opinion that no one else has had before. You are so interesting. They're facing this, like, sense of inevitability, but they continue to fight. And there's also just this air of mystique around the stable. Mm. We don't know what's inside. We've only seen people react to what they've seen inside, but we still don't know. And so it like really ramps up the horror of the scene when we see Eustace get thrown in, when we see Jill get thrown in, when Tyrion gets thrown in. It's the first time where the consequences of a battle felt felt substantial in, in a way that battles in this book series haven't really felt so far. So like that's a thing that's well done. Yeah. Yeah. We have been talking about this book for nearly three hours. So yeah. <laughs> Let's wrap up.
1: I know exactly what I want to end on.
0: Oh, let's hear it.
1: We finally find out about the Lone Islands. Oh! This has been like a running gag. We finally know. (laughs) After all this time, we know why Narnia is in charge of the Lone Islands.
0: Would you like to share the story behind the Lone Islands?
1: Apparently. Some King of Narnia saved the Lone Islands from a dragon. And they were so grateful that they were like, please rule us. <laughs> yeah,
0: I actually did like that scene for a number of reasons. There there's a line. Yeah, it made me laugh. Let me see if I can find the line. Oh yeah, so so they're just like walking and chatting, and Jill says, Oh, this is nice, just walking along like this. I wish there could be more of this sort of adventure. It's a pity there's always so much happening in Narnia. But the unicorn explained to her that she was quite mistaken. (laughs) He said that the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve were brought out of their own strange world into Narnia, only at times when Narnia was stirred and upset. But she mustn't think it was always like that. In between their visits, there were hundreds and thousands of years when Peaceful King followed Peaceful King till you could hardly remember their names or count their numbers. And there was really hardly anything to put into the history books. <laughs> somewhere out there, J.R.R. Tolkien is rolling in his grave.
1: Um, Somewhere out there, every single history professor ever just, like, died. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> this is C.S. Lewis admitting that this world is boring as f- not much happens here it's like what an amazing self-owned cs you dumb dumb man but yes we finally do learn about the lone islands we get some other like vignettes that are kind of interesting and it's like i wish we had heard more about those but
1: but here we are At the end of all things.
0: Uh, (laughs) You and me are just uh, sitting on a rock surrounded by lava, just like, (laughs) it's done, it's over,
1: the ring is
0: destroyed.
1: (laughs) And it is correct that we end our Chronicles of Narnia time (laughs) with the Lord of the Rings reference. (laughs) This is correct of us. May the eagles now swoop down and rescue us.
0: Please, please, Eagles, come and save us. Well, it has been quite a journey, and I'm glad to have shared it with you because uh God, I, I don't know how how I could have gotten through these books without your general cheerfulness. So oh. I appreciate you, Morgan.
1: Appreciate you too, Casey. <laughs> I appreciate everyone who's listening to us <laughs> for the many hours that we've rambled. <laughs> <laughs> For everyone that was like, wow, they're really going in on whether or not the talking beasts have the capability of choice.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Thank you. Thank our listeners. We'll see you next time with something that doesn't probably have talking lines. Although, really, who knows?
0: Who knows? Only one way to find out. Hit that like and subscribe button.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Wow, we're really just ending this in hysterics. Oh god. Shall we end this with a meow for Aslan?
0: Yes. Meow to you, Aslan. Meow meow. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time.
1: Bye. <laughs>